Welcome to No Challenges Remaining, episode 284. I'm Ben Rothenberg. The 2020 season, weird and fractured as it was for tennis, has ended at tour level, and it leaves us in what is perhaps an equally weird offseason. This offseason is weird because we're not entirely sure when the sport will be back on. The Australian summer, which is typically the starting line for the tennis season, which culminates with the Grand Slam Australian Open in Melbourne, will not start on time, almost certainly, as Australian officials have said that athletes will not be able to enter the country before January, which means after the required quarantines, they would not be able to start competing on time for the Australian Open, which typically starts midway through January. The Australian Open will therefore be delayed by a bit, perhaps not even starting until February. This, during this global pandemic, is not caused by Australia's struggles with COVID, but by the opposite. Australia's nearly unparalleled success at fighting and defeating coronavirus. Victoria, the state where Melbourne is the capital, has managed to completely eradicate the coronavirus, it seems, with zero known active cases anywhere in the state of more than 6 million people. This is completely, completely different than the status in North America and in Europe, where most of our listeners are. So I wanted to use this episode to get folks more up to speed on the Australian situation and the Australian landscape, particularly in Melbourne, and why some there see a 2021 Australian Open as a justified reward for their success, and why some see it as a unjustifiable risk for everything they've worked so hard for. We already know, even before this, that the Australian summer is going to be very different. Already, Tennis Australia has said that there won't be any pro tennis and that, like, normal held in Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide, or Perth, which are the normal warm-up locales uh, for the warm-up events, including ATP Cup last year, which debuted. Statement on Sunday, Tennis Australia CEO Craig Tiley, who's also the tournament director of the Australian Open, had this to say. Tennis Australia is doing everything we can to finalize the summer of tennis as soon as possible. Our intention is to deliver a summer in conditions that allow the players to prepare and perform at their best, and the fans to enjoy their efforts, all in an environment that is safe for all concerned. We're working closely with the Victorian government on a plan that takes into account the needs of the players, fans, our partners, and staff, and is of major benefit to the Victorian and Australian economies. We are continuing our urgent talks with local health authorities regarding quarantining and biosecurity requirements, and are confident that we will have decisions soon. Tennis Australia is acutely aware of the need for certainty, but also conscious of reaching a solution with the state government that ensures the safety of the entire community. We look forward to announcing our ticket on sale date as soon as all arrangements with the relevant authorities are finalized and we have more information on crowd sizes. We anticipate this on sale date will, will be within the next two weeks. I said that four days ago. We can't wait for the summer and look forward to bringing you more detail as soon as we possibly can. So to discuss all of this, the uncertainty, Melbourne situation, I spoke to Tim Callanan, a Melbourne-based journalist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Here is our chat, me and Tim. Very pleased to have on the show Tim Callanan, a journalist from Melbourne with ABC, who is here to talk about the local perspective in Melbourne as the Australian Open is coming up. When exactly? We don't know. If, if it's happening totally, we don't totally know. But uh, Tim, thank you for being here and, and congratulations on your COVID-lessness as a people down there. 
Hi, Ben. Nice to talk to you from the officially COVID-free city of Melbourne. So let's just back up, I guess. The last I was actually, Melbourne was the last international city I was in. I haven't taken any trips since uh, leaving the Australian Open in early February, which we thought was actually a pretty, you know, in its own way, crazy and chaotic and, and wild Australian Open with the initial wildfire situation and the smoke that was uh, a story during the qualifying rounds of that tournament. And COVID was really only just barely coming onto the horizon as it was leaving Australia pretty much in terms of being an international outside of China event. I remember as I was in uh, the airport going home, seeing a bunch of, of women selling perfume in the duty-free while wearing, you know, heavy-duty face masks and thinking it was odd. They were wanting you to, you know, deeply inhale around them as they were wearing these face masks, afraid of this disease. Can you just, in whatever way you want to, talk about what, what the uh, pandemic has been like in Melbourne and in Australia, it gets more at large. I know Melbourne's been on a bit of a different trajectory than the rest of the country. Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, the last Australian Open in January was was unusual in itself because, like you said, we had the bushfires in yeah. January, which sent smoke over the whole state. And there were fears then that, you know, the 2020 Open might not go ahead or might be delayed because the smoke could cause some real problems for players. We, you know, we got through that. And then the second week of the tournament, you know, the, the, the coronavirus cases in China started to rise and we saw them start to spread to other places and that's really when it started to enter the kind of public consciousness uh, certainly in Melbourne I mean we mm-hmm. we had been running stories uh, as far back as kind of mid-December about this you know strange virus that was appearing in China but no one really had any idea of what the next uh, 12 months uh, you know was likely to hold but you know we got through January we started to get a couple of cases in Melbourne from people who had actually been to the US, you know, on, on ski trips and then came back and, and uh, you know, had the virus. And then February, we got more cases and then March rolled around. And that's really when things kicked off for us in terms of closing down the borders. Uh, you know, we mm-hmm. stopped international flights, people who were Australian passport holders could come back into the country, but certainly international arrivals, that stopped pretty much, uh, you know, on the day, which in hindsight was a very successful thing for us to do because that stopped all of those cases from coming in. You know, this is we're talking about a time when there was no widespread testing regime in Australia. There was no hotel quarantine, which we've had now for the last uh, you know, six or eight months, which is... Mm-hmm. You know, a story in itself, it's been successful, but also there's been some issues with that as well, which, you know, I can talk to you about uh, a little bit later on. But yeah, March came around, we uh, we kind of stopped the international arrivals, and then we went into, a, I guess, a bit of a mini lockdown as our cases started to rise, and we seemed to have the virus under control. And then June, July, we started to see cases rise again, and all of a sudden, we were up to, you know, 700 cases a day. At one point, we had about 7,000 active cases, which, you know, by US standards is nothing, but for us was quite significant because the rest of the country had nothing. They'd they'd kind of, um, you know, successfully contained the virus and were getting maybe a a handful of cases a day. And here we were in Melbourne with 700 cases a day and really starting to kind of panic. And we went into an absolutely full-on lockdown, which I think was... One of the longest, uh, if not the longest, um, full lockdowns anywhere in the world, more than 100 days, 110, 115 days of a pretty serious lockdown where we couldn't do much at all. There was, you know, a, a curfew, couldn't go out after 8 p.m. at night, couldn't travel more than five kilometres from your house. You couldn't have visitors come to your house. You were limited to one hour of exercise a day 
tennis clubs were closed. That was that was a big <laughs> um, a big blow, you know, for me and for people who love tennis. You know, you couldn't go and have a hit, even you know, a sport where you're not anywhere near another person. That was shut right. down. So you know, we went through that for 110 days, and finally we got our cases down to where we are now at uh, absolute zero. I mean, it really is remarkable, like you said, the absolute zero. It's it's not really. Con- able to put that in any sort of context that makes sense in, in my American brain. And because, I mean, sort of eradication on that level is not something we're even talking about here. And, and, and I don't even know what we're talking about in the U.S. anymore because we're just making no progress whatsoever. I mean, the state that I sort of, we had just in the U.S. yesterday, it's recording this on on the 24th, yesterday in the U.S. we had, or 24th for me, 25th for you, the time difference. In the U.S. yesterday, we had 179,000 cases in the U.S., new cases. That's just new cases, not existing ones. And in Missouri, which is the state, which I've cited a few times when talking about Victoria, because they're about the same population, about around 6 million, Missouri had 4,600 new cases yesterday. So worlds away from zero. So now that you've hit this, this zero mark, what is, is life fully back to normal there in Victoria? Is, are the masks off? Is everything fully, you know, raring to go? We are very, very close to kind of um, what we term COVID normal. I mean, you know, from the Australian perspective, you know, we look at what's happening in the US and other places around the world. And it, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to us. You know, it's yeah. the, the, the numbers are so extraordinary and that, you know, the case numbers per day are so far above anything that we've experienced. But on the flip side to that, there are very few places in the world who experience the kind of lockdown that we had. Right where, you know, freedoms were pretty much reduced to, to, to zero. It, it, it did have a, a huge impact on our economy. Businesses went under, people lost their jobs. One of our airlines basically folded and was, uh, you know, put into receivership. So, you know, I'm not saying it was a perfect scenario, but we did manage to get, uh, you know, things under control. And we are almost back to normal. You know, we you can go to a pub, you can go to a restaurant and have a meal. You know, numbers are limited inside some of these places. You know, movie cinemas are open. We, we haven't been able to go to see a film for six months. So mm. we are, are definitely getting close to that stage. But, you know, the, the, the other thing that that has done is it has set the bar very high for us. You know, the, the, the acceptable point now for us is practically zero in terms of new cases and, and active cases. We had just this week, you know, the, the last chap who was an active case of the virus in hospital left hospital and was cleared. That was it. That was the last case that we've had in Melbourne. So that's now where the standard is set. And if you look at an event like the Australian Open, where you've got, you know, potentially hundreds of people coming from all over the world with, uh, you know, uh, health concerns that follow that, you can see where there is a certain amount of... Um, concern and skepticism in Melbourne yeah. about what that could mean. So yeah, that, that, that's, that's what we're grappling with at the moment. Yeah, just one, we'll get to the tennis in a sec. Just one last sort of thing on that, what you're saying that zero is now sort of the acceptable number or the sort of the goal number at all times. Uh, I, I'm just as someone who's, you know, has friends in Australia, obviously could spend a month or so in Australia every year, I've been following it probably more closely than most Americans that what's happening there. And a lot of Aussies and, and Melburnians were really, you know, beating themselves up or beating each other up when, you know, you'd have a day with like seven cases in Victoria, you know, in the last couple months, maybe, or just when that, when that was seen as a rise from the previous days, three or whatever, or even like, I don't know, 12, or just pick some random low numbers, like really, really holding yourselves to very, very high standards here. 
and again, I, it, it, to scale that for me as someone with, you know, again, this country of 180,000 yesterday is crazy or just Look, it's, it's blame, mind boggling. Yeah. Like for, for most things, I blame New Zealand, you know, they, yeah. they, they were the ones, <laughs> you know, they, they eliminated the virus before us. And if there's one thing that Australians hate, it's being, you know, outdone by New Zealand it happens far too often. They've got much cooler actors and musicians than we do. And we hate it. We hate it when they do something better than us. And, you know, they, they managed to, to basically eradicate the virus. So we knew that it was possible. Obviously, we're talking about a much larger scale, a bigger population. But being an island, you know, we, we, we can close our borders. You know, it, it's different if you're in Europe and, and the US where you have so many more adjoining countries and it's hard to kind of adequately police people coming into the country. But, uh, you know, we were able to do it. People who came to the country had to spend two weeks in hotel quarantine, which is a difficult thing to do. Uh, if you can kind of imagine what it must be like being in one room for two weeks straight, it's not much fun. But, you know, we did it. People kind of accepted that it was possible and knuckled down and, and, and did it. And to be honest, there was, I mean, there was some discontent in the community, but not a lot. Uh, most people were kind of on board with what we were trying to achieve. And, you know, life was tough. It was the middle of winter and, you know, you couldn't go and see friends. There were people who didn't see family members for basically the, the whole of the year. Mm. Things like weddings and, and funerals were limited to 10 people. So, you know, that's very difficult. We had 800 people die from COVID in, in Melbourne over the course of that time. And, you know, 10 people at a funeral, that's a lot of people who didn't have a chance to say goodbye to loved ones or, yeah. you know, had to, had to cancel weddings and things like that. So it was not an easy thing to do, but we kind of got together as, as a community and, and managed to achieve it. A lot of people said it wasn't possible. They thought setting that target of, you know, I think the target was getting to an average below five cases per day over uh, a 14-day period. And people said, that's ridiculous. That's no way you could, you could possibly do that. But we've done it and here we are. Yeah, congratulations. So one other thing I will add just before we get to the tennis is not just the um, the international travel restrictions. You guys also had domestic travel restrictions. Our interstate travel was pretty much blocked, right, between all the different Australian states. That, that's right. So yeah. uh, we don't have anything like that here. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I understand that's, that's a, when you're talking about 50 states compared to, you know, uh, seven, that's that's a much bigger challenge, but that's what happened here. You know, you couldn't go from Victoria to New South Wales or Queensland. Even within Victoria, we had what we called the ring of steel around Melbourne. So you couldn't actually go from Melbourne into regional Victoria. Mm. And, you know, that, that sets up a whole range of problems in itself for people who live outside of metropolitan Melbourne who have to come into work or, you know, people who've got elderly relatives or properties or that kind of thing. There was a whole range of issues that came up with that. But, you know, we worked through it and it seems to have worked. You know, we've got now 26 days, almost a month now with no uh, COVID cases. So, yeah, we've we've done it. And it was, yeah. um, you kind of have a sense of achievement having got there, but now we've got to go back and repair all the damage uh, to our economy, to our businesses that, that right. that's happened also that six months. Well, again, my congratulations on, on getting it done and having the sort of will. I, I just don't think even, you know, you talk about logistics of 50 states versus seven. I just don't think we've even had any sort of buy-in from people or, or consensus on anything to even get started on those sort of conversations, which you have. So good work there. Like now, now you said, now it's time to repair and to renew things. And one of the things on the forecast, one of the big, probably I'm guessing 
probably easy to say the biggest annual event in Melbourne by a lot of definitions. The Australian Open is less than two months away from its normal start date. How how are people there having come out of, you know, the dark tunnel into into the light now? How are people seeing the Australian Open on the horizon? Uh, what, what are the sort of, I know, I know it's mixed, but if you can sort of generally talk about uh, thoughts towards the Aussie Open as they are forming now in people's minds. Yeah, well, there's still a, a bit of um, confusion about how the Australian Open will happen. Uh, there was talk of moving all of the events from Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide, Hobart, all to Melbourne in the in the month uh, before the Open. Yeah. There's still no certainty around quarantine arrangements, player bubble arrangements, that kind of thing. All that will be worked out probably in the next, uh, you know, 48 hours or so, because we're really get, getting very much to the stage where things need, need to be put in stone. But in Melbourne, there's been a real split, I think, between the people who are desperately keen for the Australian Open to go ahead and the people who are really apprehensive about what that could mean to what we've achieved. I mean, having zero active cases is, is a very kind of fragile and precious thing. And, you know, we've seen that the majority of our outbreaks have come from international travellers. So, mm. you know, we're re you're really putting that at risk and nobody wants to go into another lockdown. I mean, that was... It was really not much fun at all if I could put it yeah. in those kind of terms. And, you know, to have that put at risk by, you know, a bunch of tennis players who may or may not strictly adhere to the rules in the same way that we have, you know, that's that's an issue for a lot of people. On the other hand, you know, there are people, plenty of people, obviously, who love the event, um, want to see it go ahead. We've had so much kind of taken away from us already this year that, you know, we really want to have something we can keep and you know for a lot of people the Australian Open is that you know the the, the AFL obviously you've spent some time in Melbourne you know how big AFL is Australian rules football we lost the mm -hmm. entire season this year they, they basically shipped the whole thing up to Queensland so that was a big thing that was taken away for Victorians in terms of witnessing live sport the other thing the melbourne cup carnival our big horse racing event you know that they kind of floated early on the prospect of some people going to attend that it was a big backlash so that was kind of knocked on the head as well that was another thing we lost so yeah look it's it's something on the horizon that people are certainly looking forward to to a certain extent but there's also a fairly big percentage of the population who are like no we're not putting what we've achieved at risk because of a tennis tournament even though like you said it's, it's a big money spinner for melbourne and victoria you know traditionally that huge influx of people from overseas have brought tens of millions of dollars into our economy and you know that's that's kept businesses alive and it's something that businesses need right now cafes restaurants pubs that have been closed for much of the year need that uh, that extra income and that support and that's another aspect that that organizers obviously are still trying to work through yeah you mentioned the the hotel quarantine which is part of, which would be part of the definition we've seen this for the aussie players who've played you know the french open for example and then gone home uh daria gavrilova one of the aussie players sort of documented her stay in the, in the 14 day quarantine hotel i think tennis players had hoped and i think maybe tennis australia as well had hoped that there'd be sort of a way to, to bend that for tennis players where they could have be in the hotel but still be given access to practice courts somewhere and hundreds of players it would be showing up for a grand slam that would need lots of courts somewhere it wouldn't just be they could use the one court you know in the hotel courtyard or something like that that seems to be sort of a, a big sticking point and 
potential deal breaker for this whole thing. What do you think in terms, and this you can use this answer to get into a bit, like what the but the successes and the struggles of the hotel quarantine system have been, do you think that that would be something that a lot of Melbourneans will balk at, the idea of a sort of flexible quarantine of some sort, whether they're able to practice or even potentially, as some players have, have hoped, compete during a quote-unquote quarantine time? Yeah, that's a really difficult thing to to try and put together. I mean, the, you use the term flexible quarantine. There's very little mood, I think, in Melbourne for anything that might, might be right. termed flexible quarantine because, like I said, our, we experienced a, a second wave of the virus, which actually was sparked by lapses in our hotel quarantine system. Basically, you know, it's suspected that security guards broke some of the protocols, contracted the virus from people in the hotel quarantine system and then spread that into the community. And that's what led to our second very long 110-day lockdown. So. Yeah. If you're talking about hundreds of tennis players coming into Melbourne and having, quote unquote, a flexible quarantine arrangement, that is not going to go down very well. Uh, you know, if there's even a small risk that then that could spread coronavirus into the community, then that, that's a major no-no. And, you know, that, that is a real sticking point. Obviously, it's difficult for the players. You can't come and sit in a hotel room for two weeks and not train and not practice and then be expected to go out and play a Grand Slam best of five sets. That's not going yeah. to work. And you know, we've seen uh, Daniel Medvedev say pretty much the same thing that players may not come if that's the situation. You know, if they have, if they have to spend two weeks in quarantine and and not practice or, and have match play before a major event, then players won't do it. it it's a I suspect there will be some kind of some kind of in between scenario where you know players are confined to a hotel that has courts nearby or attached, and you know they're under strict rules to kind of be transported to and from. But, yeah, the, you know, the more you have people moving around, the, the greater chance you have of coronavirus being spread. And I know, I know you know, if you're talking about um, this kind of scenario in Europe or the US, then you go, well, well, it's just a few people, you know, when you've got however many thousands of cases per day that you have now in Europe and, and the US. But like I said, we're at zero. And, yeah. and, and the appetite or the willingness to go back into another like lockdown like Benin is absolutely zero here. Any breach a player might make of, you know, hotel quarantine arrangements or protocols, they will be hounded. You know, the, the press here will come down on them like a ton of bricks. And I'm not, I'm not sure how much the players actually realise that. I mentioned before the AFL season, players basically went up to Queensland and had a similar kind of bubble situation. And breaches of that kind of system were very much publicised in the media and players were demonised for kind of any kind of breach that they made. So whether the you know players on the ATP and WTA tours realised the extent of that kind of attention that they might receive here, I'm not, I'm not really sure they do uh, fully appreciate that. Yeah. What do you think the reputation of tennis players is in the pandemic, or I guess I'm, I'm sort of thinking of flare-ups that have happened this year with Novak Djokovic's exhibition about the Adria tour, which was disregarding any sort of pandemic protocols as it went along. The, you know, there was a, a one positive test only of a player, Benoit Paire, during the U.S. Open, but a bunch of other players were sort of exposed to him uh, through various card games or things like that that were happening at the player hotel there. What Do you, do you think that there was another player who, you know, during World Team Tennis, Danielle Collins, like, drove off and went to some other city for a while and sort of left the bubble. And that also, and she got kicked out of that league for that. 
are those examples things you think that you as a tennis fan or other people more broadly in, in Melbourne are aware of? Do, does, te- does, tennis, does tennis have the trust of people to behave well or, or is it viewed with skepticism on that front, do you think, because of because of those incidents or other things? You know, we saw what happened with uh, Sam Querrey in, in Russia as well. You right, know, yeah, that's a big one. Flee the country. So th- there is um, a skepticism of how seriously some players might take it. I think as a whole, uh, there's respect of of what the players have kind of been through. They've been through bubbles, like you said, in the US and in France. How stringent and successful those situations have been is very hard to tell when you've got, you know, uh, communities where coronavirus was running rampant anyway i mean you know france even at the, at the stage of the of the of the french open was having twenty thousand cases a day so how do you gauge whether that that player quarantine system was successful you can't it's impossible but here you know where you've got zero you can kind of gauge that but i think there's um there's a reluctance to kind of to take uh the advice of players uh from a melbourne perspective i mean you know we, we've seen Novak Djokovic kind of say, oh, look, let's go ahead, try and make this event happen. Well, that's, you know, Novak's a legend of the sport. You know, he, obviously he's coming from a place of positivity. He wants to do, you know, the best for players. But Melbourne's not going to take advice from a guy who organised an event where everyone got COVID. You know, that, right. that's not going to fly very well down here when we're everyone's kind of uh, trying as hard as they can to stay at zero cases. So there there is a reluctance to kind of just say, oh, okay, yeah, sure, come and play a tennis tournament here. That's 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 not acceptable, um, I think, for Melbourneians, um, given what we've achieved. And, you know, like I said, whether the tennis players have a full grasp of that situation, I'm not sure. But uh, they will certainly uh, get a taste of it if, if they do come down here. How, how do you think the, the sort of attitudes in terms of, like you said, the people who are who are for it and, and think that this is sort of something that Melbourne has worked towards and earned in terms of having this big sports celebration event and people who think that it's far too big a risk to do something like this. Do the, does those sort of camps, do they delineate across any sort of clear lines of, of, you know, I don't know, sports fans versus non-sports fans or some sort of partisan political divide or, or age groups or whatever else it might be? Is there a way to, is it, or is it just down to sort of personal personalities here how, how do you see the sort of the maybe the fracturing of that among the in the conversation yeah look I, I don't think it's necessarily political although there was a bit of a political split in melbourne when it came to the lockdown one-sided politics uh very much you know on board with whatever the state government here was was trying to to do and whatever we kind of were subjected to the other side of politics you know as the case always seems to go was taking you know the other side of the of the argument but here it's certainly in terms of uh the australian open it is more of a you know sport fan versus non-sport fan situation mm. and even though the event is really big and really popular there is not uh it, it's not the biggest sports focus of the year in melbourne uh you know if you look at obviously the afl season is still yeah you know, by far and away the most popular with Melbournians. The Australian Open is by far the most significant international event we, we hold. But certainly sports fans are keen to get back to kind of normality, being able to go and and see events. And, you know, obviously the tennis community in Victoria very strongly wants the event to go ahead in some form. But also uh, realising that 
crowd numbers are going to be limited. You know, we're talking about maybe a quarter of the number of people who are able to, you know, to go and watch. So even then, you know, there won't necessarily be a chance for every tennis fan to go and, you know, see the tennis in 2021. So that's another thing that's kind of weighing into the argument. You know, if we can't go and watch, then maybe it's worth just kind of delaying the event for a few months and you know, until we get to a point where there's a vaccine around and we can hold an event in a way that we have, you know, for the past 30 years or so. So the, the split is, is more kind of sport and non-sport people, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Obviously, there are, there are people who, who, you know, don't necessarily like the Australian Open and, you know, probably don't pay much attention to it anyway. So people in that camp are, would very much be, no way, I'm not letting a bunch of tennis players come in and, and put what we've built, you know, at risk. So that's very much something that our state leaders are trying to grapple with to keep everyone happy. And you can imagine it's a big task and uh, you wonder if it's going to be entirely successful, but fingers crossed, that's for sure. So you mentioned the delay of a couple of months. You think that's sort of where the conversation is? Because I mean, I know obviously the French Open was able to delay from May to September of this year. Uh, or I guess really October is when it, most of the tournament was, but uh, you know it's the tennis calendar has other events in it as well. It's possible that if Melbourne, sorry, that if the Australian Open can't get close to its original date this time, if if things are starting up around the world, it might not happen until twenty twenty two, or maybe you know I don't know November twenty twenty one or something much later. Um, yeah, I, I think it, yeah, it, it could be a bigger sacrifice it, than just a couple months delay. Yeah, it's more likely to be held uh you know around the time it generally is but maybe delayed by a week or two that's kind of been the the majority discussion so far Uh, you know there's there's big pressure coming from you know uh, the the host broadcaster here to keep the event at that time because you, you know you've got school holidays um where you get obviously that that big crowd coming a lot of people at home looking for something to watch on tv and they use the Australian Open to basically plug a lot of programs, which follow on afterwards. Uh, and you know, I've seen you a lot of my heard... kitchen rules ads for sure. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's and it's it's you know, if you're talking about from a purely tennis fan perspective, it's it's <laughs> it's painful to watch sometimes. Yeah. But the reality is that that is a big part of of the considerations for the host broadcaster to to be able to use, you know, that second week of the Open to plug programs that follow and there there is a significant amount of pressure being applied from channel nine which has the rights to organizers to keep the dates as close to possible um as they have been for for decades so yeah that's something that again it comes into considerations you know there's so many stakeholders here to, to kind of appease it, it, it's provided an absolute headache for organizers but if it does go ahead and it's you know January February. I think that's that's a massive achievement to actually pull all of that together and still go ahead with an open. I mean, we you know a French Open moved itself um, how much four months five months yeah uh, you know created a bit of chaos as well in the processes the French like to do. And I think there's a, there's a reluctance to kind of follow that same path and just go oh we're going to hold it in March or April because then you you upset a whole bunch of other tournaments who have already either cancelled themselves in 2020 or had to completely rearrange their schedules. So, yeah, if we can keep it around the same time, I think that would be the best for all, uh, all considered.
Yeah, no, for sure. A- any other parting thoughts before I let you go, Tim? Thank you very much for all your time and uh, insight here. No, look, I'm just I'm fingers fingers crossed. I'm I'm you know really uh, hopeful that it does go ahead because, you know, like I said, we've we've had to do without so much this year that me as a, as a tennis nut, I just want this one thing. You know, I just <laughs> I just want to be able to watch some tennis and and you know have a, a as normal a summer as possible. And I'm really hopeful that you know all the work that we've put, we've put in over the last six months to get our city to a state where you know we have basically no COVID that we can have this one thing we can pull it off successfully and we can run it in a way that means you know we don't bring that terrible virus back into our city and uh yeah hopefully we can do it and hopefully you can come down at some point Ben and watch them tennis yeah I don't know if they're gonna let me in I mean I you know that's actually something separate issue the journalist traveling situation I I Having, I would have to quarantine too, obviously, and you know, I don't, I'm not yeah. getting paid the sort of money the players are in Melbourne during that whole trip to make that make that break even. So it's gonna be tough for a lot of international journalists, I know already. But best of luck uh, if it does go forward, hopefully. And just congratulations again. Best of luck, even more so with the with the keeping the zero up. You're the envy of every American, uh, and congratulations on on reaching that threshold. And yeah, good luck keeping it up. Thanks, Ben, and, and good luck to the US with your uh, efforts as well. I'm sure 2021 will be hopefully uh, better and brighter than uh, 2020 has been so far anyway. I think that's a, a low bar to clear, hopefully. So hopefully we can get there. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much, Tim. Appreciate it. Okay. Cheers. So thank you very much to Tim, and thank you all for listening to No Challenges Remaining. As we stare into the abyss that is this offseason and don't know what's on the other side, we appreciate all your support as always, especially on our Patreon, patreon.com slash no challenge remaining. We can give monthly support. If you want to support us for December, uh, a few more days to do that uh, left in November, you can sign up and do the December 1st start date, which is that's how we do it. It starts on first of the month, basically. It's a huge support for us. We want to thank, as always, we do people who have gone to patreon.com slash no challenges remaining and backed us at the Patreon Slam Champ level. We thank them every episode. Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Susanna W., Jean Simeon, and Antonio Maycumber, as well as our GOAT backers. We also thank every episode Mike, Nicole Copeland, Charles Cena, and J-O-D. You can also send us questions, comments, no challenge remaining at gmail.com, on Twitter, at NCR underscore tennis. And I think that's about it. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody. Hope you're staying safe, doing smart things, and being grateful for what we still have. And we'll be back with you with more NCR in the month of December. Bye, guys. Bye.